Welcome back, everyone. You're watching We Heart Therapy, the special series EFT Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Annabelle Bugatti, licensed marriage and family ther therapist and certified EFT supervisor and therapist here in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. We're welcoming back to our show one of our very favorite EFT trainers. We have Dr. Ryan Rana. He is the founder of the EFT Center in Arkansas. He's the licensed marriage and family therapist as well as an LPC in Arkansas, and he's also the founder of the Joshua Center. And we did a previous episode on um, attachment dilemmas, so we're super excited to have him back today. And we're going to be talking about the importance of attachment histories and how that is important in our work as EFT therapists and with the clients. And so thank you, Ryan, again so much for being back on our show. It's great to be with you. Everywhere I travel, people are watching these, uh, these videos and, and really benefiting. So I appreciate how much you're investing in EFT. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for being a part of this because we wouldn't have a show if it wasn't for your wonderful time and tremendous contribution. So thank you. Yeah, that's my honor. <laughs> so let's talk about attachment history. So, and, and Ryan, this isn't a very common topic. Um, so let's first, um, before we get into the topic, let's talk about maybe give a quick definition of attachment histories, or I'll tell you what I think my definition is, and then you can tell me a little bit more about um, the topic. But when we say attachment histories, from what I, from my perspective, what we're talking about is a client's um, experience with attachment growing up through their life up until now, their attachment experiences that have shaped who they are and how they show up in their relationships and in the world. And this can be parental relationships, romantic relationships, and any kind of attachment experiences that have shaped their attachment strategies. Does that feel like a fair definition? That's great. That's great. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, this is kind of the second half of step one in EFT, right, is doing the attachment history. And the reason I picked this topic, one, you've already got so many great topics covered on your, uh, on your channel here. I don't, ever, I don't hear it talked about very often. And uh, the, the pieces I want to share today, they're, you know, not necessarily profound, but I, I have gotten feedback from supervisees and clients that it makes a difference. And so I think this is a, I want to be really practical today and looking at something that can make a difference in our work. So yeah, that's what I want to do. That's wonderful. Cause I, I definitely think there's a need for practical applications of the model. And so if we can dive into this, you know, what would you say? So tell us a little bit more about attachment histories and practically speaking, why are attachment histories important? And, and w at what point are therapists going to want to be collecting the attachment histories? Yeah, great questions. Um, I think there's some variation in how EFTers do this. Uh, I'm a textbook guy. I really like to meet with the couple or family as it may be once, maybe twice if there's a lot of chaos. And then I really like to split them and, and do separate attachment histories. Um, I used to do it some of the time. Then I began to do it all the time with couples. And then I saw the value of also doing it with individuals and families. So I'm, I'm pretty religious about doing it in this way because I've seen the real benefit. And, you know, the traditional use of an attachment history is part of the assessment. And, and I do want to comment on that, although I'm not going to emphasize that today. It's a great time for us to check on safety. You know, it's a, it's a time if there were violence or something that's unsafe about their relationship, you know, I'll, that may not come up 
with the partner in the room or the family member in the room. So it's important that we do it in that way. What I want to do is to try to advance the, the conversation about attachment histories a little bit into two areas that maybe don't, maybe aren't always used this way. I think we have opportunities in small doses to use really impactful psych ed to shape expectations about the process. And also, um, more importantly, I think we have a chance to be really EFT in our attachment history and to use someone's story to have a, a small corrective experience with them with their vulnerability. So I'll be talking about that here in just a moment. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, and oftentimes when I do my um, attachment histories, I'm already connecting dots for the clients. Like, oh, so this happened to you. I'm, I'm doing kind of like my step four, like, you know, connecting that to the significance of the relationship. Like, oh, this makes so much sense. So you're telling me you had this experience and how that would play out today. And, you know, really like digging out those attachment themes. And people, a lot of my couples walk away from their attachment history already having new dots connected. And they're like, wow, that was so like, I never really understood these things about me before, you know? Exactly. Well said. Yeah. And, and the, way I, the way I introduce it is um, I need to ask you, you know, kind of nine to ten questions here. And what I'm looking for is what lessons your body took in about how to respond to distress and about bonding, specifically around comforting. Right. So, so that's something, that's the way I say it. I, I like to, I like to use the word body because it's not necessarily awareness and, and it's very real. It's a very physiological response. We know that attachment is a, is a survival instinct, how people uh, seek proximity or reject proximity. Oh, those are all attachment variables. And so that's what I ask people for. I tend to say the, the period of time I want to focus on is before you met your partner, if it's a couple and really looking at the lessons that your body took in during that time. And yeah. so that's the way I introduced that. Um, you know, for me, attachment history, and I, I, I was, as we were preparing for this, I'm not exactly sure who to give credit to. I'm sure at some level this is Sue Johnson's. I think Scott Woolley was involved in this. I don't know if Becca or others. Um, so certainly I'm not saying this is original, but really quickly, just the seven categories that I tend to address I started off with the list that I got at my externship back in, uh, I think that was 09. And then, you know, after a while you memorize it. And so I go off, off that. And I really recommend that, by the way. I definitely would not encourage, just my opinion here, to give the attachment history out to be filled out. I think you would miss, on, miss out on really important variables of, yeah. of being able to experience your client answering these questions. So the seven categories for me, are really assessing the emotional rules of expression that came from their family of origin is number one. Number two is to establish their safe attachment figure in their growing up years and what their dance was around that. The third one is uh, experiences with betrayal from that attachment figure and or rejection from important relationships. To me, that's really important. Then I want to assess for competing attachments. I know that you've, you and others have written a lot about that and even getting specific about have they or do they have competing attachments and then safety you know when life when did they first learn that life could be unsafe and that kind of segues into a trauma history which we need to find out because we know that some people say trauma changes the brain i would like to add 
it's not so much that trauma changes the brain. It's as much as it is being left alone in trauma. Unrepaired trauma changes the brain. So we want to know that. And then the last one is, and I used to skip this for years until I learned the hard way. The last question for me is, for this, for this experience uh, in therapy to be successful, I've got to be able to go with you into places that aren't so comfortable. So what do you need in this relationship, therapist to client, for you to feel safe? What do you need me to know? And about 40% of people have, don't, they're like, ah, nothing, it's fine. But about 60% of people give me really great responses right there. So I would encourage people to don't, not skip that question. That's a tremendous question. And now I'm curious, what kind of like helpful responses have you gotten from clients? Yeah, questions like, I need to, I need to know for sure that you're not going to might be judge me or over-focus on this. Or sometimes it's like model stuff. Like, you're not going to make this all about my gender, are you? Or, or sometimes cultural things will come forward. I'll have people when I'm working with someone from a different race or different maybe lifestyle than me, they're, they're able to ask about that in that moment, which is 100% a win. Anything that they tell me is really, really helpful. And so I'm able to facilitate my presence with them uh, right from the start. So every time someone gives me a great answer, I'm always write down, make sure you continue to ask that because yeah. that's really important. So, yeah, I mean, EFT, we talk a lot about how EFT is all about safety. And in some way it is, but in some way it's not. Mm -hmm. EFT is about establishing safety so that people can take risks because right. if, our, if our clients won't take risks, there won't be growth. That's exactly right. And that's kind of, you know, and you touched on this before about setting up expectations is I let clients know that I, I know how to curate safety in our room. So of course it's very common that at first through the first part of our sessions that the only time you'll notice each other taking risks is when you're here in my chair. But I hope to help you guys learn how to curate safety together so when you're at home, you can curate these moments and create enough safety at home in the outside world to start taking these risks together. And so that also helps get the pressure off of me where it's like, you know, not all on me to create the change and puts it back where they have to take responsibility for doing the work outside of the session to see growth happen. That's great. That's great. And, and I, I love that as a goal. I love that as a, something that we communicate to them. I also think it's a great, it's great to, you know, kind of like we talk about an EFT, it's one thing to talk about safety. It's another thing to have an experience of it. And I think attachment history is one of our first opportunities to really give uh, people an experience with us of being safe, of being caring, nurturing, whatever responsive, whatever words you want to use in their vulnerability, because it's really impossible to answer these deeply personal questions without accessing vulnerability. And it's a huge mistake for us to be in assessment mode during attachment history. This yeah. is major therapeutic land. In fact, a lot of the work will re-enter these places uh, during hard moments of therapy. So uh, I think that's maybe one of my main messages is just to encourage therapists, particularly maybe newer therapists, not to go into assessment mode. I remember I used to work in an agency. We did a 24-page survey of assessments and, and we, you know, it was just digital. We were like in a hurry. And uh, to me, that's a huge mistake here. This is way too personal. And your clients learn to expect you to respond to their inner world 
based on how you're responding to their responses from these questions. So I think it's really important to be intentional with, with how we respond. I love that. And so this is what I do. And remember, there's multiple right ways to choose how you do your individual assessment, attachment history sessions. But I know some therapists just do half an hour. But to me, that's not nearly enough, especially if they've been married for a really long time or they're a more mature client. They've had way more life experiences that have shaped them. And I don't want it to feel like an assessment. I give each person a whole session just for themselves and I use it to build alliance and rapport. And I go in and honestly, the first question I ask is tell me, you know, where you were born or grew up. A, because it's going to tell me a little bit about their culture. And, you know, it feels like more of a, let me get to know you in a way that feels less like I'm studying you like the frozen caveman, right? I want it to feel like a natural conversation, which will help build that tone of safety. Like you're not scary, you know, okay, I can start opening up and telling you about these key moments in my life and my history that have really impacted me. And it's starting to feel safe when I feel like you actually have, want to have a conversation with me and you want to get to know me in this safe way. Yeah, that's great. And because in some ways, every family, maybe even every client is their own culture. This is an opportunity for us to lean in and be curious about their, about their whole experience of themselves and not just specifically to the presenting problem. And particularly if someone is, is of a different race than you or a different type of relationship, this may be a good time to ask directly you know, it, is your race, for instance, a part of this? Does this factor in? Um, this is one of many points that you might check in with that. Yeah, it's so important, too, because, you know, if you've had a client who maybe is first generation born in the United States or maybe wasn't even born in the United States, you know, they'll say, you know, for example, maybe I was born in Korea. You know, I'll ask them, you know, how, how much is that? you know, the cultural values and norms a part, was that a part of your life even when you came to the U.S.? Is that still an active part? And I get to learn about their culture and they're telling me, you know, patriarchal and this and that, you know, so they're giving me really key information nice. as to some of their attachment experiences. Exactly. Nice. All right. So just kind of jumping in and getting practical here, you know, the two takeaways that I want to leave our group with, you know, there might be more than that, but, but one is, to use their answers as a way to predict the process. To me, we can't get risks until we can get safety. And one of the ways to, to get safety is to be able to help people have a sense of safety or control. So the way I think of it is if I'm on a plane that's gonna experience turbulence, I, I like for the captain to come on and to, and to say, hey, you know, be seated here, you know, buckle your seatbelt. I had one recently where the guy said, we're going to have about 12 minutes of turbulence. I don't know how he determined that, but I liked it. It made me feel safe to go, oh, I know what's coming. And so, for, for example, our first, uh, the first segment that I listed out was, what are the emotional rules in your family of origin? And by rules, we're talking about good old systems theory here, where it's like, this was the norms of how things were in your growing up years which kind of governed your expression. You know, you can do this and can't do that. So question one for me or question two, whatever order we're in here is, you know, how did you know when one of your parents was angry in your growing up years? You know, and you can get every question under the sun. And then question, the next question is, 
How did you know when one of your parents were sad or afraid? And the answers to those questions are not just answers about their history, but it's going to say, these are the rules that are in my body now. Right. So sometimes people say things like, I would have never known any of that, which means they had a very avoidant family system. Or yeah. more commonly, the question I, or the response I get is, you know, I saw anger, but I never saw vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I just stop and say, is it okay if we just talk about that for just a moment? So because of that, your body at times is going to protest this process, right? If you learned in the most powerful way there is to learn anything on earth, which is experientially. Yeah. Implicitly shown to you that we don't show vulnerability. When I ask you a question that may feel more sad or, or there might be a fear, your body's not is going to protest that. And I want you to know you have very good reasons for that. In fact, if you could, I'd love it if you could just let me know when that starts to happen. And so I'm also sort of just laying out how this might affect the process. So I think it's a good idea to sort of intermingle points of psych ed throughout here. A time again, if someone has a lot of rejection or a lot of betrayal, then that possibility is in their limbic system. And our limbic systems are so focused on our own protection that, you know, that's going to interrupt process. They're going to, at some level, feel a little more risk when it comes to things like enactments or things yeah. like responding to their partner's vulnerability than they might be otherwise. So I think it's helpful to point that out as you go, not in a shaming way, but in a normalizing or predicting possible blocks that, that, that are inevitable and just part of the process. You say so many really good things here in, in my my wheels are spinning and I'm thinking of some things that have come up for me in this and in getting this. And some of it is you'll have clients who say, well, these things weren't taught explicitly to me. So, you know, you may have to, you know, say, well, maybe it wasn't like your family didn't sit around the dinner table and say, we're not going to talk about emotions, but you learn this by the way everyone interacted with each other. And I'll say some things like, was it, did your family talk about family problems or did, did it feel more like the parents kind of went away and you were shielded or did it feel like they over talked about it or, you know, just a, a variety of ways. And, you know, one of the other things that I find is be careful around clients who will say, Oh, everything was fine. Everything was good. You know, I had a good upbringing. Like what is good is relative right? If they didn't know any better, but they had, you know, some neglectful experiences or some bad experiences, you know, and maybe good for them meant they found a way to cope and be happy through that process doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't suffer attachment injuries or have negative attachment experiences growing up. So make sure when they say it was fine, it was normal that you actually lean in closer and understand what was, what, what do you mean by normal? Can you walk me through a you know, an average day is for you as a kid, or what was your happiest moment or what was your worst moment? You know, don't always take it at face value. For sure. Don't ever take it at face value. Good, good, fine, even healthy are very subjective, right? Because for some people, what, what I might say is healthy is a very attuned, responsive system. But for some people, it's like, well, if you're not a criminal, (laughs) so yeah, So you really want to unpack what that means for sure. Well said. I had a mentor who used to say, if you grew up in a really poor place eating rats for dinner, you don't know it's rats. It's just dinner. 
right? Yeah. And so, so people's experience with attachment is really, really subjective and, and varies. What doesn't vary, what's not subjective, is that attachment is experiential. You can't teach it intellectually. It, it has to be caught and felt, not just information. It doesn't hurt to teach a little, but as we've all experienced, if you try to teach couples to bond, they'll sometimes be happy in your session, but they'll come back next week right where they were. Yes. So until we get that corrective experience online, we're not really moving the needle. Which is so important because this is another thing I've learned to ask in attachment histories is I've had clients who have said, yes, I had, you know, a parent who was available for me, but I've learned to ask if that person was available, did you go to them? Because I've actually had clients say, I had a parent available who, you know, said, you know, everything was welcome. If, if I had a sad day or a hard time, I could come to them, but I did not go to them. And I want to find out, oh, so you're saying you had an available attachment figure, yet you weren't seeking them out. That's a very, very important piece of the pie of the puzzle there to know what, what was the holdup there? You know, what stopped you from going to that person and seeking them out? And what did you do alternatively? Cause that's going to tell you a lot about their coping strategies. So I've learned, ask, ask that question. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. So let's jump in if we could and go to that. For me, it's the fifth question on the, on the form that I use or question E we've got it numbered or I'm sorry, lettered out, you know, uh, as kind of an aside here, when, so I get asked to teach parenting classes on occasion. It's not really my primary thing, but uh, after, after I learned this in EFT years back, I use it every time now. I'll just say, hey, here's the thing. If your kids come to me in 25 years or 20 years and they're in their adult relationship and um, they're having trouble, I'm going to ask them this question. Here's the question. Hey, in your growing up years when you were little and you would get hurt, Maybe you would skin your knee or maybe something would hurt your feelings. Who would you go to? How would you know or how would you let them know you were hurt and how would they respond? To me, it's the most important question on the attachment history. And in that parenting class, I say, I need them to have a lot of answers to that question. I need them to say it was my parent. I need them to have memories where you, where they, where you pulled them up in your lap and you comforted them. Because if they don't have that, if they don't have many memories being comforted, we're going to have a two-way problem. That's kind of where I want to camp out here just a bit with you. Yeah. For one, they won't know how to take in comfort very well because attachment has to be caught, can't just be learned. And so if, if, the, if the body hasn't been comforted, then it's not very good at taking in comfort. And, and so, you know, thinking about Dan Hughes and other people, Dan Siegel's work, uh, as well as Susan and others, um, People don't develop emotional fluency until they've been responded to. It's, it's response from other that gives clarity about one's inner world. So this question isn't just about their attachment figure. It's really a question of view of self and view of other at the same time. So this is a million dollar question. And, but not only that, if they've not been responded to and comforted, then they get in an adult relationship and they see their partner in distress, and they don't sort of know what to do, which basically means I tend to respond to others the way I've been responded to. And so this is the point of the question. It's also a good reminder, I think, for all of us. 
about how responsive we are to our, to our children or others around us. So I think that's really important. Does that make sense to you? It absolutely does make sense. And I was just thinking, there it is right there when you said, you know, the client who sees their partner in distress and doesn't know what to do, doesn't know how to comfort them. They're responding the way they were responded to. And I also thought it was interesting, too, when it comes time for trauma is that some clients didn't get responded to, but they know what it feels like to not be responded to, and they, they will protest it in the relationship, but then when their partner does try to comfort them, they are rejecting of it. They don't know how to take it in. Right. Or that itself is a danger cue. Mm-hmm. So it's really heartbreaking, which is it's common, but it's also really heartbreaking that when people get to this question, and I say, in your growing up years, you would get hurt. Who would you go to? How would you let them know you were hurt? And how would they respond? When the answer is, what? Nobody? I would just go to my room. And what they're saying is, uh, buckle your seatbelt, therapist, because this is not going to be easy. And this is going to take a long time, or a longer than maybe it would otherwise, at least, to, to help me be flexible with my inner world. Because I don't know my inner world. It's not possible to know your inner world until it's been responded to. And not only that, therapist, when, my, when you get my partner in their vulnerability, I'm likely to freeze or coach them or just go away. All the things that our attachment styles inform us of what to do. I'll tell you what, though. Can we do something a little weird? Sure. <laughs> can we be experiential uh, and do a role play on a, on a uh, video cast here? Is that possible? Absolutely. I'm in it. Okay. So here's kind of uh, something I learned from a supervisee years ago that she does in her attachment history. I thought it was kind of brilliant, so I'll just share it with the group. But uh, what I'll ask everyone to do is, uh, everyone listening, can you be my client right now? You can, you can see my office here. This is my clinical office. I'll give you the tour. There you go. It's kind of bright today. There's my office. So you, you come in my office. I'm doing an attachment history with you. We get to this question, so now you've got to close your eyes. Everyone had to close their eyes. And, and so you're in my office and I'll just talk to you about your family of origin and, and emotional expression range. And I did a little bit of psych ed about what that taught your body and, and how that comes forward. My next question is, so let me ask you a question that's really important. You were little in your growing up years. You would get hurt. Maybe you would skin your knee. Or maybe something hurt your feelings. Maybe you were lost a friend or you had a friend that was really mean to you. Who would you go to? How would you let them know you were hurt? And how would they respond? And so they usually give me some kind of answer there. And, uh, and so I listen and sort of validate that and honor that. And I say, can I do something weird with you for just a moment? So it's a funny thing. Sidebar, timeout. Sidebar in my old office, I worked on the, on the front aisle and I would have clients, I would have, I'm sorry, I would have people open my door accidentally. So pretend right now someone opens the door and in walks a seven-year-old little girl and she sits right there and we're all surprised. And we look up and guess who it is? It's you. So it's seven-year-old little you. And so what I'm trying to do now is to make this really vivid. I want to say something like, what are they wearing? And so I usually get answers. It's usually a giggle at first. Silly shoes. She was really awkward. She had lots of freckles. 
You know, she didn't know how to dress. She was super goofy. She was clumsy. I'm like, wonderful, right? So you can see her right now. They're like, yeah. And it's like, okay, how do you feel about her? Do you like her or do you not like her? Right, and then the, the tone sort of drops in. So other things that you can ask. What do you see in her eyes? Is she happy or is she hurting? And how do you feel about that? Other questions you can ask are, if you had one chance, if you had two minutes, and we could go back to this seven-year-old, you had two minutes, what would you say to her? That usually brings vulnerability online. I hear phrases like, I would tell her it's going to be hard or it's going to be okay, right? And if she, could, if she had two minutes to come ask you, what would she ask you? What does she need right now? Right? So I would say, so that's how I do that next question. And so this is a way to get this assessment to be experiential very quickly. This is a way to get the younger self in the room. The most important piece of that is I want them to experience my presence as honoring and validating of that version that's exists in all of us, if you want to call that inner child or younger self, whatever you want to refer to that as. I would say 95% of people, even, even big tough withdrawers, are often in some form of a tear. It's hard to close the door on the six-year-old version of yourself. Mm-hmm. And this gives me a chance to respond to them. That's the most important thing for me in all of the attachment history is yeah. to sort of, I, this is not a great analogy, but to draw first blood in terms of vulnerability. This is my shot to sit with you in that really vulnerable space and for you to experience me honoring uh, that vulnerability. Yeah, I think that would be so powerful for clients. And even as I'm sitting here and, and it, channeled something that came up for me. You know, we just had Jim Thomas out here talking about addiction, attachment, and emotion, and he did some attachment history kind of questions around sadness and different emotions. And and as you're talking about this, you know, I'm connecting the dots and remembering that I figured out in this exercise that I actually had different responses. Like I could go to my mom. She was very comforting. Like if I would cry, you know, but then I had this other experience because I was the only girl with two big brothers, you know, where I was also taught, dust it off, brush it off, you're fine, suck it up, you know, so it's like two differing. And, you know, I have a very vivid experience. I don't know if I would have been seven at this. I was in fifth grade. I don't know if I was seven or how old I was. But I remember this point where we, we were in PE and some boy like, pushed me down really hard, like shoved me because he like ran into the base I was guarding and I skimmed my knee and I stood up and I cried as I had always done. But then I remember seeing everyone else look at me cry and I felt like this shame. And that was the moment where I realized you're too old to cry over skinning your knee. Yeah. Yeah. And ever since then, I never cried over that. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. That would be really, thanks for sharing that. Uh, I think, you know, I think we all have those experiences where life teaches you that your vulnerability is not wanted anymore. And so it, it, what, an, what an opportunity it would be for me to just engage with you in that moment and sort of apologize and say, I'm so sorry you got that message. You know, we want you to know you're, it's, it's invited back. 
Because yeah. in this room, in this room, we need her online. Yeah. We, need, we need her present with us. You know, one of the few things that overcomes a reactive cycle is that sort of the power of that vulnerability when it's met with love. Maybe it's yeah. the only thing that's sort of stronger than fear. And so that's a part of us that, you know, all of us have been really, really challenged to get rid of that, just to be the stronger version of self. And yet we're in these relationships which really can't go on without it. And so this is a chance for me to have an experience with that girl, a chance for me to be overt about, hey, we need her. And maybe more importantly, a chance for you to feel caught by me because that is a small corrective experience. And if, if someone starts to be caught, they start to jump more. Yeah. But so I also about what you said, though, that I think is very, very important. You talked about, you know, asking, you know, that young girl or that young boy, that young child, how do you feel about them? You know, do you like them? Yep. And that will tell you a lot about their self-esteem also, because, again, that how we see ourselves. And when you ask that question, which is something I never asked myself about my younger self, I would say that I don't know what to think, like, mm -hmm. which is very consistent with being unsure at that age as to how I fit in, being picked on and bullied in school. I didn't, you know, I was a pretty happy kid, but at the same time, I had a lot of bullying experiences in school that, that really kind of disrupted my self-confidence and made right. it hard to, to feel sure about where I fit in. Yeah. And so that very obvious when you said how do you feel about that person I said oh, I'm not really sure because <laughs> I wasn't sure how to feel about myself back then for sure because sure, we get a lot of mixed messages right and yeah. and particularly if we don't have that stronger wiser other who are continually engaged with us then then those questions that the world brings to us become become a lot of chaos that's really really normal good, good pickup by the way you know, because how people answer that question will tell you a lot about model of self, like what you're saying. It'll also tell you something about their strategies. Um, I get a percentage of people who, and it kind of takes me off guard every time, but they'll say they hate that little girl. Right? So, so that tells you what, what's going to happen for you in stage two. And sometimes yeah. it's stage one, which is a lot of shame, very negative model of self. It also tells you that's, that, that they've usually inherited some some older person's words for them uh, other people uh, are like i love them they're fantastic which is which is kind of good to hear uh sometimes that can go with negative view of other though you see so all these are whatever they say or chaos i'm not sure not sure what to say happens on occasion but whatever it is their relationship what, what they're telling you with the answer to that question is their relationship with their own vulnerability and right. you cannot win in this model without your relationship with their vulnerability. And so this is our opportunity to earn a chance to hear that, to get that, to get that part of them back online. One of the things that we know is when, you know, the definition of secure attachment is connection, disruption, repair, connection, disruption, repair. People that live in disruption too long, it's just, it just wrecks them wrecks their view of self, wrecks their view of other. And the adaptive move there is to get rid of the vulnerable parts of themselves. And that's what we're really teeing up for is to say, hey, can we, can we fight together to get that little girl back in the room? The little girl who has needs and, and, and isn't self 
actualize and doesn't have it all together because none of us do. We're all vulnerable. So this is really about just finding that space with them really early on. Yeah. And you're saying something else that's really, really important about that view of self, you and other and the way this, you know, the implications that has for stage two, because that's where you're really going to be working with their view of self and view of other. And, you know, to remind everyone that attach what attachment theory says about those experiences and how they shape how we see ourselves and how we shape others and the way, you know, the view of others can play out as adults is you'll have people who are very jaded, you know, they'll come in and say like, they're really sarcastic or they're just really, you know, when they think of other people, they automatically go to the worst place or the worst case. They think people have a hidden agenda. Um, you know, they tend to just be distrustful of other people's intentions or, or just not believing that other people have, your best intention in mind. And so that's an indication that there's been some kind of betrayal or, you know, that there's a negative view of other versus people who tend to be, you know, generally have a positive outlook on people they meet. Like if they met a stranger in the store and had some kind of weird interaction, would they see that as that's just, you know, other people like you can't really trust them or, Oh yeah, this person, you know, like they were just struggling and it's not anything against me, you know, like that positive outlook and that'll impact how they see their partner too. You know, if they're trusting their partner's intentions or when their partner, you know, maybe gets, you see this, like when, it, when their partner gets angry, do they start internalizing that anger automatically as it's always me, even in the absence of those messages where the partner is not saying, yeah, it's you, it's your fault. You know, they'll internalize that versus someone who has a little bit more positive view of other isn't necessarily automatically de going to define everyone else's negative emotions as something that they caused. It could be, Oh yeah, maybe they're just having a bad day or, you know, they might be able to factor in more context. Yep, there's, and there's hundreds of iterations there of how that can go down, but all those it's important that we hold that attachment lens to go. All these are adaptations, attachment adaptations. And, and making sense of that. And that's what a good attachment history will, will really get you is a clear view into this world because people won't let you see it for a long time. They shouldn't let you see it for a long time. If we're doing relational work, the person sitting next to them is really important, but they're also a danger cue. So this is your opportunity to go ahead and sort of look behind the curtain a little bit and, and be with that person uh, before the storm comes. And so hopefully, I don't know that I could do it very well on a video cast, but hopefully you were catching a little bit that at, at this pace, we want to slow our pace down. We want to try to be present. We want to get out of assessment mode. We want to start working reflection and validation. We want to honor and normalize. We want to practice our risk voice where we become more simple, slow and soften as, as this experience happens with the vulnerable part of themselves. And I think that just sets us up for them to take risk in our office in the next three or four weeks. Or we talk a lot in my office about session seven or eight, which is when things really come online, right? It's the newness is worn off. The pain is there. And so if, if I've had a good experience with them in deeper places, they're much more likely to stay with me when I need, when I need to interrupt them, when I need to ask them to take a risk, they've already been there with me. So that's kind of the, the idea we're shooting for there. Yeah. So, so, and as we move through this, kind of back to the psych ed point, something I've done a lot of, uh, of, of trying to improve upon in the last couple of years for me is to get more clear from the start 
on what to ask them to expect. Um, I've been surprised to see the amount of variation that EFTers use. Some people are like introduce the whole model and do like a 10 minute thing on EFT. I, I was trained from the, from the very start of grad school not to do that. So I don't do a lot of that. Not to say that it's wrong, um, but I do uh, try to get clear on expectations. So the number one thing people present for when it comes to couples therapy is communication. And you want to talk about one of the most non-useful words on the planet, right? Because all behavior is communication. So when people say they have communication problems, they're really just saying we're not acting right, right? Yeah. So it's, it's just sort of a throwout word because that could mean so many different things. But the other thing that you hear a lot, I know you do, is we want some tools. We want some tools and some techniques. And so I, what I've learned uh, to handle that with, which is, you know, it's great to assign hold me tighter created for connection or whatever the, a good fit for them. Love sense. Uh, Jim Thomas does a nice job talking about love sense and using that book for premarital or whatever it may be. Those are great. But I've learned to say, can I be honest with you? The best way for me to give you some tools is let's use them right now. So that's what it's going to, that's what I want you to expect here. It's not so much that I'm going to teach you ideas that you go practice out there. What I want, the tools that I want to teach you is, is for the experience right now. So I don't want to talk about tennis. I want to play tennis, right? A good tennis coach doesn't sit in the, in the classroom and talk about the physics of swinging a racket. A good tennis coach gets on the court with you and gets you in angles and shows you movement. And that's really what we're trying to do with experiential work in EFT. And so I'm finding that if I'll get more clear on that, on the back half of my attachment history, Clients are more ready for it. They don't buck as much when it comes to setting up enactments. Because I'll just say, hey, this is that place. We're going to do the tools right now. Why not do the tool when your coach is there instead of practice when he's not? Yeah. And so in earlier years, I would try to talk people out of asking for tools. And now I'm like, no, here's the tools. Let's do them right now. Can you turn right now and share? Is that making sense? I love that. I think yeah. that is really a metaphor. Like, you know, a good tennis coach isn't in a classroom teaching you about the physics of swinging a racket. They're on the court with you, showing you movements, helping you with movements. I think that's brilliant. Oh, my yeah. gosh. I'm yeah. totally good that now. <laughs> helpful for me, yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a good way to frame that. And I love how you say, let's use the tools right now. You know, let's have you turn and share. You know, that's, that's so amazing. Yeah, it's so easy. And I don't want to get off on a tangent here. I know we're kind of running out of time, but. I want to try to get away from kicking the can down the road, right? It's so easy to say things like, we're going to teach you this, or we're going to deal with that, or you need to deal with that. It's always in the future, but no one lives in the future. We're living right now. And so trying to get into the, to the moment of the experience. And I think in, in the back half, or I guess you could say the front half of your attachment history is to give them a little bit of explanation of why. And so that's my favorite way to do that. So that's how I end my attachment history. What would you add to that? Well, that's Talk excellent. I think everything you said was spot on and on target. And, um, you know, I wouldn't do anything differently. One thing I've learned that I do ask is about their school experience. I found that that can profoundly shape people, um, whether or not they felt accepted by other kids or if they were bullied or picked on. Um, I remember one of my very, very first couples that I ever had right out of grad school and I'd already taken the externship and stuff, I didn't ask about that school experience. And I took them through 
you know, the course of EFT as best as I was trained in at that time. And then, you know, they went on, had some kids and then they came back and I was getting stuck in stage two and I couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. So I split them up again and did a, a reassessment and found out that one of the partners had been bullied severely in school, but not only like in a bad way, but when they did good things. So they were picked on for doing good things. So this person taught, was taught to blend in and don't, don't even put the spotlight on me when I'm getting an award or doing something good. So that helps me understand how it's so hard to even lean in and validate their experiences and say, oh, you did a really good job there. They would just wouldn't even take it in. Right. Nice. I love that. I love that. That's great. I'll make a note of that because it makes sense because our, the primary years where we're developing model of self really are the school years. So that makes good sense that we want to, to jump in there with them. One, one thing I did leave out here, I'm just checking my notes here, is, you know, when it comes to, back to that key question, if I could, just real quickly, you know, in your growing up years, when you would be hurt, who would you go to? Oftentimes the answer is, I didn't have anyone. And I've learned this, and I can't recall who I got this from. It might have just been Sue. Um, but go ahead and push for, the, for an answer, because there always is one. Uh, it, it's often not a parent. Some, it's oftentimes grandma. Or mm -hmm. I didn't have anyone. I didn't have anyone. So just stay there a bit longer. And sometimes it is my band director or my youth pastor or some, some figure caught them. And it's really, really important that you have that because then I want to interview them on, okay, so, so mom and dad weren't safe. Your brothers picked on you. You know, you had, I don't know, whatever, a creepy uncle. But grandma was fantastic. Can you, and so I want to interview them. What did you notice about, their, about that relationship? Because those dynamics are as close as you have towards their knowing how to bond. Yeah, to a mom. Yeah. So just go ahead and push for that because it's there every time, but it's oftentimes not on the surface. So sometimes they're like, Oh, I can use grandma or my aunt. Yes, yeah. absolutely. You can. And there's a lot to learn from those relationships. I love that idea. Cause you're, you're really creating a file of any template they had of any kind of secure attachment or healthy bonding, just anything that you can put into the file to access as a resource. Yeah. That's brilliant. Absolutely. And just kind of wrapping up, you know, it's all about how their body has been trained uh, mm -hmm. to handle distress and to bond or not. Yes. And so it's, it's, this is a huge heads up for us as, the, as therapists to recognize how we're going to be blocked. You're going to be blocked. If I'm not getting blocked a lot enough, I'm probably not working hard enough or not putting enough pressure on their system. And so this gives you a heads up. I had a client one time who I just asked, you know, uh, the first question, how would you know when one of your parents was, were angry? And, that, and they just said, which ones? Because they had been through, I think, 15 foster homes. And just it, their, their life had been complete chaos. So instantly that tells me, okay, I'm going to have to go super, super slow. And I'm going to have to quadruple my work on Alliance. And, and, and that case was successful, but it was a hard one. And I, I found myself having to continually stop in session and say, here's who I am. I'm fighting for you. I'm on your team. I know it's hard right now, but no one ever fights for you in this place. And so I'm going to fight for you. Can you help me fight for you? And if I hadn't known that history, 
and I hadn't been that overt in who I am in her life, there's no way I could have ever helped that person. So that's kind of how all this ties together for me. Yeah. So the, the case in point is that the attachment history is such a vital point, vital part of the work that we do together. And it gives you information about their view of self, view of other, their greatest attachment needs, any models or templates they had for bonding, how emotions were handled, how they learned to either seek proximity or avoid closeness. Um, and all these, you know, we'll, we'll plant little seeds that you'll see, yep. you know, ah, I got to put that in my pocket because that's definitely going to come up in stage two, you know. And it has incredible opportunities here to really give small corrective experiences with vulnerability. But in order for that to happen, we can't think of this as just an assessment. We have to really practice our responsiveness and attunement and even maybe consider this possibility of a, of a planned experiential exercise as a way to um, really have a new experience with someone which can help us with later experiences that they're, need, they're needing. Absolutely. And I kind of think of it as a, this is helping me get to know you as an attachment creature in the yes. world. Yes. Perfect. That's important. So sometimes I'll even ask, what is it like to have me lean in close and, and to talk about these things with you in a way yes. that you're, you're saying feels safe and different right now? And they'll yeah. be like, you know, and, and it's kind of a cool process. So, yeah. Brian, you've really just given us so much helpful information today. This is so valuable. Thank you so much. Now, if folks want to find you, if they want to email you, they want to book you for a training or, or look to see what trainings you offer, where will they find you? Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to stay connected. So uh, I have a, a, a website and a Facebook page that are both Ryan Raina Training. So RyanRainaTraining.com is my website and uh, Facebook, Ryan Raina Training. And then uh, you can email me, RyanRainaPhD at gmail.com. And uh, my friend and I, we talked about this just before, uh, James Hawkins, an EFT supervisor, and I are doing two podcasts. So both of them are called The Leading Edge. One is Leading Edge in EFT, and the other one is Leading Edge in Leadership. And so we're excited about that. And then I'm joining, uh, along with you, several other supervisors and George Fowler with a new website called successandvulnerability.com. So we'd love to, to connect in those ways. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ryan. And guys, I'm going to make sure that I put the link to Ryan's websites and information in the description for this video on YouTube. And just a reminder that we are a podcast now available on iTunes, We Heart Therapy. So thank you guys so much for staying tuned. Thank you, Ryan, for being on our show and just for offering your, your wealth of expertise and, and your attachment heart with us. Okay. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Thank you, everyone, for continuing to watch our episodes because of you that we're being successful. And just thank you so much for the helpful feedback and the reaches for support and encouragement. I so appreciate you guys. And you know, if you have any ideas for future topics you'd like to discuss, you're always welcome to get in touch with me and let me know your thoughts. And as always, please make sure that you hit subscribe because more episodes are on the way.